When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Slate Money is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, the trust no one edition of our weekly podcast, guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. This week, I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, of all places. And today, we're going to talk about non-compete clauses, the contracts that restrict the job options, even of sandwich makers. Then, did you know that almost all findings in financial economics are false? Or are they? We're going to talk about that. And finally, the London whale. You remember the London whale cost JP Morgan $6 billion. Turns out someone was watching all along and knew all about it and didn't really say anything. And that someone was the Federal Reserve. Who knew? And finally... The numbers lightning round. As usual, let me introduce our regular guests back in New York. We have Kathy O'Neill, the best blogger in the world. You're at oh, mathbabe.org. Okay. Hi, Felix. <laughs> She's trying to shout all the way have to Ann Arbor. Slate's money box columnist here, Jordan Wiseman, who doesn't need to shout because he, he speaks softly and carries a whopping great stick. I don't know, but my voice does carry. That is, Your I don't. Voice feel, does carry. Yeah, if shouting it's, is it's, just it's, not it's, necessary. It's all that. It's all that millennial vocal fry. Yeah, it's just there's a certain like wavelength that just shoots across the room if you fry correctly. Um. By the way, as ever, all questions, comments, complaints about vocal fry and Jordan, please send them to slatemoney at slate dot com. We're going to start, Kathy, with you. Tell me about my options. Should I be working at Jimmy John's Sandwiches? There is one just around the corner from me in Ann Arbor. I have never been to Jimmy John's. Um, Well, I've actually, I haven't read the Jimmy John's non-compete. And to tell you the truth, I didn't even read the D.E. Shaw non-compete that I I signed when I entered the hedge fund D.E. Shaw in 2007. Um, It was approximately an inch thick. It was a really long contract. But the basic idea was that I wasn't allowed to steal um, ideas that I learned in the hedge fund and go somewhere else and tell them the secrets. And, you know, that was a common practice in in finance, but it's spread a lot. It's And it used to be like sort of upper level management that really used to know the secrets. And now that's also changed. Um, it's now kind of like lower level junior employees. I was kind of a junior employee. I was a 
quant, but I wasn't a, a senior quant. So this kind of thing has evolved over the last decade or so, and we're going to talk about it. It's The short take is it's it's actually bad for companies and bad for employees. Um, but first, before we come up with our verdict on this, explain what this has to do with sandwich makers. Well, you know, I, I'm going to throw it to Jordan because Jordan not only has sandwich makers to talk about, but other ridiculous examples of non-competes <laughs> that he was mentioning. Go ahead. So, okay, the big story with non-competes right now is that they're spreading and spreading and spreading way past, you know, the C-suite where they used to be common, way past upper-level management, all the way down to low-level employees like the guys who make your sandwich at Jimmy John's. The Huffington Post found out that Jimmy John's sandwich makers have to sign a non-compete so they guess, I guess they can't go over to Subway. I just want to mention that, you know, what a non-compete says yeah. is like once you quit your job or somehow leave your job, you cannot work for a competitor between six months from after you leave your job or two years. It goes up to two years. Up to two years. And so, you know, I mean, this is, is sort of absurd. What secrets are Jimmy John's sandwich make? What competitive secrets are they going to bring to Subway? But it goes way beyond that. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported, for instance, that since 2002, the number of published U.S. court decisions involving non-compete agreements has risen 61 percent, which is another way of saying employers are suing their employees a lot more often over these things. It's becoming a legal tool to intimidate people from leaving their job. And this is one of the things which I think that many people, upon joining a company and getting a big pile of paperwork to sign, they're like, oh, yeah, this is boilerplate. I'll just sign on the dotted line. It doesn't really mean anything. It's probably not enforceable. No one's going to sue me anyway. And they just move on. But what you're saying is, actually, these companies are suing. Absolutely. They're suing. And just doing it a little bit more often is a way to intimidate more employees into thinking twice about leaving their job. If it's more difficult for an individual to defend themselves in court than it is for a company to bring a lawsuit against them saying you've broke this contract, they have a lot of attorneys around who can just file the suit, whereas you can create real havoc in some individual's life, whether they're a scientist somewhere, an engineer, a, a quant at a hedge fund, or a guy who makes sandwiches for a living. And I, to really stress just how absurd this has gotten, um, the New York Times did a report on this a a little while ago, where they actually found a summer camp. I repeat, a <laughs> summer camp that was using non-competes that said their counselors could not work for any camp within 10 miles. And the reporter asked the summer camp's owner what on earth their rationale was. And it's just, I have to read it back to you because it's, it's just, it's mind-blowing. He goes, our intellectual property is the training and fostering of our counselors, which makes for our unique environment. It's much like a tech firm with designers who developed chips. You don't want people walking out the door. This is a summer camp. Okay. L let, me, let me throw in a little bit of like, more reality to this because that is totally nuts um, and, and probably extreme examples. The truth is it, it varies by state, and so that matters a lot. And so when, you're talking, when, you're, when I worked at the hedge fund, you know, you'd have a lot of people talking about how they were going to quit DE Shy. They didn't want to wait two years to work for another company, so they just moved to California and worked there um, because California does not um, honor um, non-competes. Yeah. So just like to be clear here, the important thing isn't where your job is right now. It's where the job is that you're moving to. So if you work for DE Shaw in New York and then 
work for a competitor in California, that's cool. That's right. I mean, they well, it's it's not cool according to D. Shaw in New York, but they just can't do anything about it. And the, I mean, the other thing is that they've done studies on you know whether this is actually good for business. I mean, because obviously from the perspective of the employee, it's not great. It means that instead of making your life happy at this company, they're just going to keep you there because of this legal contract, which is obviously not not the ideal situation for the employee. But for, even for the employer, it's not that great. They, Massachusetts is a place that they do have strong non-competes, and California is a place that they don't. And they, they think they've shown that these, the effect of non-competes being honored in Massachusetts is actually bad for creativity and for entrepreneurship for businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And but wait, is- it's, bad, it's bad for businesses overall, but this is the tragedy of the commons, right? That even if it doesn't make sense from a public policy perspective for Massachusetts as a state, it's still rational for any individual business in Massachusetts to have a non-compete. That's absolutely true. Thank you for pointing that out. So if I'm a Massachusetts company, it would be silly for me to be the only company without a non-compete because then all the other companies could poach my employees. And you couldn't poach back. Yeah, and I could not poach back. But in California, we all poach each other. And, we, and having said that, like we all know that there's this other lawsuit going on about how they actually had an agreement among like the fancy startups not to not to poach. It wasn't the fancy startups. It was the it was Apple and Google and the big. Oh, sorry, giants. the big the big giant companies in, in who Silicon were, who Valley were agreeing not to poach each other's employees. And this and I think this gets to the bottom of the reason for non competes and the reason for these probably illegal gentlemen's agreements between the likes of Apple and Google is that it's nothing to do with protecting intellectual property and it's everything to do with minimizing labor costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if, you, if you have a non-compete agreement, how, you, you can't bargain for higher salary by threatening to go to the competitor. That's a great point. Uh, absolutely. It's, it, it's about control of workers. And the Wall Street Journal article you know, actually quoted one day to scientists saying, I wound up taking a job paying less, which wasn't in my field of research, precisely because I didn't want to. I just do want to throw in, though, that there is intellectual um, content which you lose when people leave. And I, I, I actually think that's one of the reasons that hedge funds are making less money is because people do leave and they take their knowledge with them and start up new hedge funds. And so, I mean, there is both but, going but on. The way, the way to deal with the loss of intellectual property when people leave the company is not non-competes. There are other ways of doing it which are more effective. You know, I, I want to drill down a little bit more to why this is so bad for entrepreneurship and innovation, which is we often think of startups as, you know, created by wonder kids, like, you know, straight out of Stanford or wherever, and they come up with some brilliant new product no one thought of because of their youth and, uh, you know, naivete or whatever. They think they can conquer the world. But that's not really who starts the most successful companies. It's usually two middle-aged guys who are, like, at Intel or something. You mean women, I think. Or a guy and <laughs> a guy and a gal. Like, two middle-aged executives who have some experience under the belt know something and see a business opportunity. So if they're then told, you cannot take the knowledge that you acquired in your years of service and go start a new company, that just totally decimates the ability to create any sort of innovation economy. It's really not good. And right. And that's what you see in 128. Yeah. You just see not very many startups and just big established companies. Yeah. These... Did you say 128? Oh, sorry. That's the, it's, there's like a technology belt around Bo- the Boston area. It's called the Route 128. And that's where yeah. you see all those technology companies that aren't like Silicon Valley because partly because of this, it, this non-compete stuff. It, it's stodgy. 
they get things get stodgy. And I, you know, I, my take on this is that there's just no reason that I, I think more states should follow California's lead. Just ban non-competes. There's just there is not a good public policy reason for them. It's a it's a clear example of what's good for a business is not good for business. Maybe federal Congress can ban non-competes. So you don't need to leave it up to 50 states. But that's enough on non-competes. I think right now what we need to do is start telling you about razors. Because we have a sponsor. This may not be exciting to the rest of you. It's exciting for me. I received a wonderful package. If you like unboxing, you should order Harry's razors because they come in a fantastic box. This is me unboxing the Harry's box. I hope there are sharp pieces of metal in here. Look at this. Look at this! Isn't that pretty? That is how your Harry's razor arrives. Razors! You get a beautiful box. Inside the beautiful box is shaving cream, three razor blades, a lovely, heavy, feels great in your hand, everything, razor. And you get it for... $15, which is nothing, as you know, compared to what you pay in the drugstore. And what's more, you get it for $5 off that $15 because I have a coupon code for you. It's Slate Money, one word. If you go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, type in Slate Money, one word. Five bucks off 15 makes 10, if I'm doing my math correctly. This is cheap. The razor is fantastic. And you get to stick it to the man. You know, you get to disrupt the horrible industry of charging you enormous amounts of money for razors, which we all know cost much less than the amount we pay in drugstores. So give it a go and happy shaving. And so I'm going to move on to Jordan. Tell tell us about economics papers and finance papers, I believe. So back in 2005, there was a pretty shocking study uh, that found that most research findings in medicine were probably false because they didn't use strong enough statistical standards. This month, uh, the world of financial economics, which tries to tell us uh, about things like what drives stock prices and is very important to people like hedge fund managers, is having a, a sort of similar moment. I don't know if I'd call it a crisis, but there's a new working paper that has come out that says most research findings and about half of research findings in this field of financial economics are, quote, likely false. Why is that? Well, it's by a professor at Duke University named Campbell Harvey, who's actually the former editor of the Journal of Finance. So this is a heavyweight in his field. And his basic point is that when economists are looking at what drives stock prices, they aren't just testing one variable. They're testing hundreds of variables, maybe. And the more variables you test, the more likely it is that one of them randomly, by chance, is going to look like it has a really strong correlation with asset prices, that it's going to have some relationship. And essentially, economists have not been using a strong enough statistical standard to weed out all of those false positives. This isn't just an academic controversy. It also suggests that all the people who have been coming up with financial products, all these fund managers and selling them to investors, have also not been using high enough standards. This is all a little bit worrisome to me, but I I mentioned this to Kathy earlier, and she was totally unsurprised. And so I kind of – I want to hear why you're not surprised by this and what your takeaway is. Well, and let me jump in before Kathy, who actually knows about this. 
this, Storks. Um, the first thing I, I want to say is that the classic, classic John E. this paper from 2005 was not just about medicine. It was about all evidence-based research, really, and social science research. So the fact is that this latest paper is completely unsurprising because we've known this since 2005. And what we learned in 2005, even back then, clearly did apply to economics and finance and basically anything evidence-based. And it's a large part just because of the way that research works, that no one ever wants to publish a research paper which says, I wondered whether there was a correlation between A and B, and then I looked into it and there wasn't. So all of those millions of unpublished research papers just never appear. And every so often when you do find a correlation, you go, yay, and you publish it, even though that one statistically is probably just an outlier and can't be replicated. Right. And so I want to, I'm going to, agree with everything that's been said so far and add a few things. Um, and it's I call this proof by XKCD cartoon. Um, <laughs> if you guys know about XKCD, what classic... Is this about jelly beans? Yes, the jelly beans one. And it's, I it's, love the XKCD <laughs> jelly beans cartoon. It's one of the <laughs> best cartoons ever. Yeah, I just say, if any listeners out there have not read XKCD, it, it is it is kind of required uh, literature for all nerds, yes. uh, math and otherwise out there. So it, in this particular cartoon, there's 20 panels, and in, in each panel they try an experiment, and in the last panel they find something statistically significant about purple jelly beans or something. And they're like, you know, statistically significant. But the point of these tests is that it just means the chances that this is a random event is is low. And so what you're what Felix said is exactly right. If you if you do twenty tests, then one of them will be, you know, one out of twenty. And then you'll see it'll seem like statistically significant results and then you, you can publish it and you can't publish it otherwise. Um, and going back to what Jordan was saying with the mutual funds, what if you're a mutual fund company, what you do is you start 20 funds and then you take the best <laughs> performing fund and throw away the other 19 and say, look how great this is. And that really does happen. The last thing I wanted to mention is that these models are generally speaking descriptive rather than predictive. You cannot turn them into predictive models which make money on Wall Street. And that, for a person working in finance, is what matters. So the, even if the papers are statistically significant in some sense, they're not money-making models. Oh, that's interesting. And the one thing which, which is worth noting here is that the standard opinion of market types, and especially efficient market types, is, well, of course these findings don't work because as soon as they're published, everyone knows about them and they start implementing strategies which monetize them and then all of the predictions essentially get arbitraged away. And that is not happening. No one has ever read a paper and said, oh, I see there's an arbitrage here and a way to make money and then they implement a strategy and then it goes away because someone's making money off it. It's just that they don't have the predictive power to begin with. I, I, I won't say never, but it doesn't seem to really happen. And, and, and hedge funds try all the time. So, And also you can see in, in the past data whether that's true and it doesn't seem to be that true. So yes, I'm going to agree with you. But the big picture here is that finance is really no different from any other social science or indeed medicine. And this is more generally something which everyone should bear in mind um, every time they read a story in a newspaper saying, a new study has found that, you know, this, oh, is, absolutely. Good for you, this is bad for you. In general, you can ignore 99% of that because it's a study. And unless and until that study is replicated, you can basically ignore it. Yeah, the, basically the only thing they actually know is that aspirin is a blood thinner. 
<laughs> That's pretty much it. And all other sort of results from, like, especially biomedical science, are like, okay, that's a little bit too broad a statement, but it's absolutely amazing what we actually don't know and what we think we do know. What we think we know is huge. What we actually know is tiny. And what we actually do know, the other thing which we do know, is that the placebo effect is incredibly powerful. And if you just go into treatment, even if all you're getting is, is sugar pills, this will do wonderful things for you. In any case, enough on theory. Let's talk about practice here. And let's talk about what was going on in J.P. Morgan when their chief investment office in London started laying on these massive multi-gazillion dollar bets, um, which ultimately, as we all know, wound up blowing up in their face. What This has gone down in history as the London whale trade. There was this guy working in London um, working for J.P. Morgan, who lost all of the money, and he was the whale who who wound up getting beached. This was a huge egg on Jamie Dimon's face. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, is famously more aware of what's going on in the nooks and crannies of his bank than just about any other bank CEO. Uh, Jamie, Jamie Dimon prides himself on having the most sophisticated risk management systems he can possibly build. And yet, he had no idea that this monster trade was going on right under his nose. And under the nose of Ina Drew, who was his top risk manager in many ways. So the question is, if he didn't know, is it possible that anyone could have known? And the answer is fascinating. The answer is, well, actually, not only could someone have known, but there were people who did know. And the people who did know were working for the Federal Reserve. And this is, this is amazing to me, that the Federal Reserve could see these risks being taken and knew that the chief investment office in London was doing all manner of really stupidly risky things. It knew things which the board of directors of J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon himself did not know, and quite possibly even Ina Drew, the boss of this unit, did not know. And what did the Fed do about it? Of course, the Fed did nothing. We know um, from the This American Life investigation of what the Fed did at Goldman Sachs, the standard thing for the Fed to do is nothing. And in this case, the Fed did the standard thing for the Fed to do, which is not only fail to confront J.P. Morgan on its clearly lax risk management in London, but it didn't even bother to inform J.P. Morgan's main regulator um, of what it had found. There was no in regulatory exchange of information. This was a big regulatory fail, was it not, Kathy? Well, yes. I mean, for sure, the OCC, which was the regulator that was supposed to be on top of this, should have been informed by the Fed when they saw the problem. But I want to go back a little bit because I, I'm not sure I believe that Jamie Dimon didn't know anything about this, but I do agree that if he didn't, then it's kind of a proof that n nobody can actually know everything in such a large company. And I also want to say that we, we've seen a couple of articles this week talking about how it's not the regulator's job anyway. So the narrative now is like, well, the Fed didn't tell the OCC. But on the other hand, it's not really the regulator's job to make sure that banks don't lose money. That seems to me like that narrative is like amnesia um, provoked. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is they, the CIO office, which was headed up by Ina Drew, who had this huge bet, lied to the OCC about what was going on. Um, and then Jamie Dimon lied to investors about what was going on. And they actually manipulated the value at risk model so that it would look like it wasn't as bad as it was. And, and at some point, they stopped sending the OCC 
any kind of reports on their on their portfolio whatsoever. So they they it really was a cover up. It's like the, the idea that the regulators aren't supposed to like go over and above and beyond is that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a, is a a rogue portfolio management system that didn't even report to its regulator. It's a totally different issue. I, earlier, I, I was talking about banning non-competes. I think I'm going to kind of repeat myself a little bit and say ban regulators. Um, I mean, I, I'm kidding a little bit, but this is an example, I think, of why we need a financial system that doesn't hinge so much on the individual decisions of people at the Fed, of individual regulators. There needs to just be built-in safety valves in terms of things like capital requirements. Oh, that will make sure, Jordan, what? I don't think anyone is blaming yeah. the Fed for the fact that the London Whale no, but, no, no, but up. No, 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 no. I'm not saying blaming the Fed. for. It. I'm saying it's just an example, though, that people take, you know, if you're expecting people to pass on this information to keep a you know eagle eye you can't always you can't always count on it and so if you're going to give uh if you're going to no, but treat this as no, a, i don't but this is what i'm saying no one was counting yeah. on the fed to notice this and pass on the information to the occ and that would have stopped the trade from happening obviously it's jp morgan's job to not do these insanely risky things in the first place the question is from a systemic risk perspective Do we have regulators who talk to each other and who tell each other when they see something? You know, if you've got that kind of if you see something, say something attitude. And the fact is they don't. And that is a problem. And I don't think the answer to that problem is, oh, well, regulators are useless. We should just ignore them. Well, I don't know how you're necessarily disagreeing with me here. We don't have regulators who necessarily stand up to the banks. We don't have regulators who necessarily talk to each other. And we are counting on them to do these things. And the OCC is famously uh, bank friendly. Like, I mean, the Fed is bank friendly, as we know, from the secret tapes and stuff. But the OCC is like probably, as, as far as I know, known to be the most bank friendly of all the regulators. So, I mean, one thing I could say to you, Jordan, is that it's true that we don't want super bank-friendly regulators that don't even notice when they're not getting reports from huge portfolios in, in very large banks. So those kinds of regulators are useless. I think I, I'm still kind of an idealist, and I think that regulators could be asked to actually do their job. This just has not yeah, happened. I'm with Kathy and against Jordan on this one. This sort of... <laughs> Uh, defeatist attitude to regulators, well, they're not very good, so we shouldn't expect them to do anything, I think is silly. We should expect them to do things, and I, they can. You can hope for the it's best, not... but plan for the worst. I guess that's my, my, my take on it. Uh, anyway. And what do you mean by planning for the worst? Well, what... what you mean is having systemic risk regulation, which ensures that the financial system doesn't blow up when people make stupid bets. But you still yeah. need to have regulators check to make sure they're following those regulations, which is really what happened here. We do have regulations in place, and and, uh, and J.P. Morgan and the CIO of o office were actually trying to avoid doing what they were supposed to do by regulation. So this is a kind of an example of the ideal situation with non-ideal regulators. So let's hope that next time the Fed is not asleep at the wheel. Enough of that. We will move on finally to our numbers round. I'm going to take a stiff drink here and start with my number, which is 2,447, which is the number of bottles of wine that this poor guy in Philadelphia had to surrender because he lived in New Jersey and he'd spent 10 years plus building up this amazing wine collection of 200 plus cases of wine, um, which all of which he loves. And he was buying one by one from all of these cult California winemakers. And 
then he moved to Philadelphia and he didn't realize how big of a deal that was because when he started talking to other wine collectors who were like, oh my God, you have that? Can I buy it off you? He's like, sure. What he was doing was breaking all manner of Philadelphia laws. There was one of these wine collectors turned out to be an undercover Philadelphia cop of all things who then prosecuted him and the forfeit was his entire wine collection. And this is where it gets really bad that under... Pennsylvania law, when he has to forfeit his entire wine collection, what happens to that wine collection? It gets destroyed. They want to pour it down the drain. <laughs> I'm like, you can't do this to wine. It's How to torture Felix. <laughs> it's so sad. Why create another victim? Okay, I'm going to go next because my number is so very different from Felix's. It's a nice juxtaposition. Um, So there was a conference in Boston, the Boston Fed last week that Janet Yellen um, gave a really interesting speech at. But there's also another paper presented, um, and, and it was talking about mobility for different parts of the population. And what it showed was that the middle 20% of blacks, black people born in the middle 20%, of them, 32% ended up in the bottom 20%. And it, for whites, it was 14%. That's just sort of one example of the poverty trap that was pulling the blacks lower than where they were born and pushing the whites higher than where they were born, which is a really depressing thing to see, to see in, uh, about mobility in our country. Jordan, cheer us up. Uh, I think it'll cheer some people up. I don't know. We'll see. So my number is 90%. That, according to Dick Kruger of the University of Pennsylvania and Fabian Kinderman of the University of Bonn, would be the ideal, the optimal top marginal tax rate for the top 1% in the United States. What do they mean when they say optimal? They mean essentially that, yes, if you taxed uh, the top 1% at 90%, they would be poor. The economy would actually probably be smaller. It wouldn't be good for GDP. However, thanks to redistribution and the social safety net, et cetera, et cetera, uh, everyone else would actually be better off in terms of their spending and uh, personal well-being, et cetera. This is just one study. It's a modeling exercise. It's not even empirical, but it's getting passed around the liberal blogosphere a lot. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it kind of continue to snowball and hear people, more people saying, hey, there are studies saying that 90% would be a good top. So to be clear, this is the marginal tax rate which kicks in once your income gets into the top 1% range, which is what, about half a million a year, something like that? I believe so. Yeah, I, I don't remember the income threshold off the top of my head. Call it half a million a year. Every dollar you earn above 500000 should be taxed at a 90% rate. That appears to be it, yeah. Well, that's wow. before all the tax loopholes, of course. Oh, yeah. Those are, <laughs> which, you know, back in the Eisenhower era, when we actually had tax rates like this, those, there were plenty of loopholes. But still, yes, that's, I think that's about it. It's, it's interesting to me because I've, I've seen proposals not unlike this from the likes of Thomas Piketty, but mm-hmm. normally they kick in rather higher than, you know, half a million. They normally kick in at sort of 10 million or something like that. Um, In any case, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And do leave a review there if you like it. Uh, And as ever, please do keep on writing to us. The address is slatemoney at slate.com. We want to hear your complaints and your ideas and your maybe even compliments. Uh, Producer for Slate Money this week is Stan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.